Book Two, Chapter Three of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie McLean. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book Two, Chapter Three. When a long and heavy sleep, my first sleep since dear mother's death, had brought me down to the dull plain of life, I read for the first time the letter so strangely delivered. Even then it seemed unkind to my mother that I should think about it. Mr. Vaughan had placed it in a new envelope, which he had sealed with his own ring, the original cover, if any there were, having been removed. The few words of which it consisted were written in a clear round hand upon a sheet of thin, tough paper, such as we use for foreign postage, and folded in a peculiar manner. There was nothing remarkable in the writing except this, that the words as well as the letters were joined. It was as follows. The one who slain your brother is at 19 Grove Street, London. You will come in danger of it why you know. No date, no signature, no stops, except as shown above. In short, it was so dark and vague that I returned to Devonshire with a resolution to disregard it wholly. When we reached the foot of the hill, at the corner of the narrow lane which leads to Tossel's Barton, and where the white gate stands of which the neighbourhood is so proud, a sudden scream was heard, and a rush made upon us from behind the furze bush The farmer received the full brunt of the most vigorous onset, and the number and courage of the enemy making up for their want of size, his strong bastions were almost carried by storm. To the cry of, "'Daddy! Daddy's come home!' Half a dozen urchins and more, without distinction of sex, jumped and tugged and flung and clung around him, with no respect whatever for his Sunday coat or brass-buttoned gaiters. Taking advantage of his laughing, they pulled his legs this way and that, as if he were skating for the first time, and little Sally, his favorite, swarming up, made a base foot-rope of the great ancestral silver watch-chain whose mysterious awe sometimes sufficed to keep her eyes half open in church. Betwixt delight and shame, the poor father was so dreadfully taken aback that he could not tell what to do, till fatherly love suggested the only escape. He lifted them one by one to his lips, and after some hearty smacks sent all, except the baby, sliding down his back. While all this was going forward, the good dame, with a clean apron on, kept herself in the background, curtsying and trying to look sad at me, but too much carried away to succeed. Her plump cheeks left but little room for tears, yet I thought one tried to find a road from either eye. When the burst was nearly done, she felt, like a true woman, for me so lonely in all this love, though I could not help enjoying it, and so she tried to laugh at it. For a long time after this the farmer was admired and consulted by all the neighboring parishes, as a man who had seen the world. His laborers also, one man and a boy, for a fortnight, called him Sir, a great discomfort to him. More than this, some letters were brought for him to interpret, and Beanie Daw became unduly jealous. But in this, as in most other matters, things came to their level, and when it was slowly discovered that the farmer was just the same, his neighbors showed much disappointment, and even some contempt. It was not long before the thought of that letter, which had been lain by so scornfully, began to work within me. Again and again, as time wore on, and the deep barb of sorrow darkly rusted away, it came home to me as a sin, that I was neglecting a special guidance. Moreover, my reason for staying in Devonshire was gone, 
and as my spirit recovered its tone, I could not put up with inaction. Three months after our return, one breezy afternoon in August, when the heath had long succeeded the gorse and broom upon the cleave, and the children were searching for what's and half-kerneled nuts, I sat on a fallen tree, where a break in the copse made a frame for one of our favorite views. Of late I had been trying to take some sketches and watercolors of what my mother and I had so often admired together, and this had been kept for the last. Wild as the scheme may appear to all who know the world and its high contempt for women's skill, I had some hope of earning money in London by the pencil, and was doing my utmost to advance in art. Also I wished to take away with me some memorials of a time comparatively happy. Little Sally Huxtable, a dear little child, now my chief companion, had strayed into the wood to string more strawberry beads on her spike of grass, for the wood strawberries here last almost to the equinox, and I had just roughed in my outline and was correcting the bold strokes by nature's soft gradations, when suddenly through a cobnut bush and down the steep bank at my side came, in a sliding canter, a magnificent red deer. He passed so close before me, with antlers like a varnished crabstick russet in the sun, that I could have touched his brown flank with my pencil. Being in no hurry or fright whatever, he regarded me from his large deep eyes with a look of courteous interest, a dignified curiosity too well bred for words, and then, as if with an evening of pleasant business before him, trotted away through the potted wild broom on the left. Before I had time to call him back, which, with a childish impulse, I was about to do, the nut-brush where he had entered moved again, and, laughing at his own predicament on the steep descent, a young man leaped and landed in the bramble at my feet. Before me stood the one whom we had so often longed to thank, but, at the sight of me, his countenance changed entirely. The face, so playful just before, suddenly grew dark and sad, and, with a distant salutation, he was hurrying away when I sprang forward and caught him by the hand. Every nerve in my body thrilled as I felt the grasp that had saved my mother and me. "'Excuse me,' he said coldly. "'I will lose my prey.' But I would not let him go so curtly. What I said I cannot tell, only that it was very foolish and clumsy and cold by the sight of what I felt. Whom but God and him had I to thank for my mother's peaceful end, and all her treasured words, each worth a dozen lives of mine. He answered not at all, nor looked at me, but listened with a cold constraint, and, as I thought, contemptuous pity, at which my pride began to take alarm. "'Sir,' I exclaimed, when still he answered not, "'Sir, I will detain you no longer from murdering that poor stag.' He answered very haughtily, "'I am not of the Devonshire hunters who toil to exterminate this noble race.' As he spoke, he pointed down the valley, where the red deer, my late friend, was crossing, for his evening brows, to a knoll of juicy grass. Then why was he pursuing him, and why did he call him his prey? The latter, probably a pretext to escape me, but the former question I could not answer, and did not choose to ask. He went his way, and I felt discharged of half my obligation. End of Book 2, Chapter 3